If your back is against the wall, you have three options. You uh, adjust to your situation, or you resent what you don't like and become bitter, or you resist and you fight back. And fighting back nonviolently, and legally, and with marching feet, are acceptable, creative ways to fight back, and they tend to work. Uh, when you can, when you can speak up and speak out, when you can write and be heard, you don't need to go on the ground and become a terrorist in America. You can speak out. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Now here's your host, Megan Hayes. Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. is one of America's foremost civil rights, religious, and political figures. Over the past 40 years, he has played a pivotal role in virtually every movement for empowerment, peace, civil rights, gender equality, and economic and social justice. Born in Greenville, South Carolina, he graduated from the public schools in Greenville and then enrolled in the University of Illinois before transferring to North Carolina A&T State University and graduating in 1964. He began his theological studies at Chicago Theological Seminary, but deferred his studies when he began working full-time in the civil rights movement with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He was ordained in 1968 and received his earned Master of Divinity degree from Chicago Theological Seminary in 2000. Reverend Jackson began his activism as a student in the summer of 1960, seeking to desegregate the local public library in Greenville, and then as a leader in the sit-in movement. In 1965, he became a full-time organizer for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was soon appointed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to direct the Operation Breadbasket program. In 1971, Reverend Jackson founded Operation Push, People United to Serve Humanity, in Chicago, with the goals of economic empowerment and expanding educational, business, and employment opportunities for the disadvantaged and people of color. In 1984, Reverend Jackson founded the National Rainbow Coalition, a social justice organization based in Washington, D.C., devoted to political empowerment, education, and changing public policy. The organizations merged in 1996, and the work of both continues. A renowned orator and activist, Reverend Jackson is known for challenging America to be inclusive and to establish just and humane priorities for the benefit of all, and for bringing people together on common ground across lines of race, culture, class, gender, and belief. He has been on the Gallup list of the 10 most respected Americans for more than a dozen years. For his work in human and civil rights and nonviolent social change, Reverend Jackson has received more than 40 honorary doctorate degrees and frequently lectures at major colleges and universities. He has received the prestigious NAACP Spingarn Award, the organization's highest honor, in addition to honors from hundreds of grassroots, civic, and community organizations from coast to coast. On August 9, 2000, President Bill Clinton awarded Reverend Jackson the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. From 1992 to 2000, Reverend Jackson hosted Both Sides with Jesse Jackson on CNN. He continues to write a weekly column of analysis, which is syndicated by the Chicago Tribune and Los Angeles Times. He's the author of two books, Keep Hope Alive and Straight from the Heart. Reverend Jesse Jackson, welcome to Boone, to Appalachian, and to Sound Effect. It's good to be home. I was born in Greenville, South Carolina, and went to school at North Carolina ENT, which is in the plains of North Carolina and the coastal part down near Wilmington. But Greenville is 60 miles from Asheville. But now that I've been to Boone, I've been to the real mountains of North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I thought Asheville was the real mountains, we used to play football against Stevens Lee High School. The bus could not carry us up the hill. We had to get off at the bottom of the hill and walk up to steep hill almost vertically 
when our football talks were not back, so I remember the Asheville being just as straight up in the air. My goodness. But there's so much there's so much booming up in these hills. <laughs> we're not going to make you walk up any hills while you're here. Well, I am <laughs> delighted to be here, though, just to be here with students and faculty. The thinking democratic process is exciting yes. to me. Yes, for sure. Well, I wanted to ask you um, about something that I didn't really mention in your bio because um, there are many accomplishments I didn't I didn't cover, but I remember you were running for president in 1984 and 1988, and I'm wondering, can you just talk about what that experience is like? Well, I think two things may have been missed. One, in '84, I ran in, for the presidency. In '88, part of what it's about was to get to know the country. I mean, to run is to go to Iowa and get to know farmers and family farmers in a different kind of way, family farmers versus corporate farmers, mm-hmm. and to go to New Hampshire, and then to come down to the urban centers of the country. So to run is to get to know the country, and that a lot of preparation for debate mm-hmm. on the issues of our time, but they're far under domestic issues. And so I think one of the, one of the accomplishments was the psychological break that could a black run right. was a big issue by the, at that time. Of course, it could happen, but it seemed to be impractical. But we did very well in Iowa, very well in New Hampshire. And we, the first time around, we got 2 million new voters and 400-plus delegates. But what was off about that was if something called winner-take-all. If I got 40% of the votes, someone else got 49, they got all the delegates. And so we fought for proportionality. Mm-hmm. So by, two, by 88, when I ran again, we got another million voters and 1,200 delegates because we got our shared delegates. That seemed to be innocuous until 2008 when Barack ran against Hillary Clinton. Hillary, in the end, won California and Texas, Ohio and Pennsylvania. On the 84 rule, she would have been the winner. Huh. Based on a winner take all. If she had taken all of California right. and all of Texas, Ohio and Pennsylvania, she would have been the winner. But the proportionality, she could only get her share, which enabled Barack to win. We democratized democracy. That was a big piece of, of changing the landscape of politics. And, that, and now everybody uses proportionality as opposed to winner take all. The second thing we were able to do is to go to foreign countries and bring some Americans back home from mm-hmm. prison in Syria and Iraq and Cuba and Yugoslavia and the like. And that was just a joy to be able to convince these leaders to, re- to release Americans as a way of opening doors of dialogue and reducing tensions. I, I wanted to look back a little bit because I, I want to ask you a little bit about the history of the civil rights movement. And, and when when I look at that, I think about the roles that, that both college campuses and the church um, had in that social justice work. Um, and I'm interested in that link between the faith-based community and, and affecting social change and, and political change through the church. Can you talk about what responsibilities you think the church and faith-based communities have or or don't have in the political arena? The church must set the moral standard for the society. It, it must choose conscience uh, and convictions uh, over culture. The, the cross is higher than the flag. The cross is universal. The flag is national. So we are, we are as much concerned about freedom in South Africa, uh, Europe, as we are in America because... It's a moral, ethical, universal responsibility. So we fight to feed the hungry in Mexico. We fight to feed the hungry in India, as the case may be, because that's a kind of moral, not just a responsibility politically, but moral. Uh, 
when students come alive, they have the power to change things. And really, when they, often the innocence of their deaths prematurely. For example, when Emmett Till was lynched in 1955. I remember asking Mrs. Parks one day, I said, Mrs. Parks, why didn't you go to the back of the bus? You could have been beaten as some have. You could have been killed. She said, I thought about Emmett Till. Mm. I couldn't go back. Wow. So his blood cried out from the grave. That was He was killed August when they, she was arrested December the 1st. I remember when Fred Hampton was killed, innocent blood. She was killed and bled by the officers, by the, the state's uh, attorney in Chicago. And somehow that blood erupted and touched people in such a way until they fought back politically rather than violently. And they changed the political order. They defeated the, the state's attorney in the election that year. The same was true with Laquan McDonald in Chicago, who was killed by police a few years ago. And they coupled up the tape for 400 days, spanning an election, for fear that it would get out. It finally got out through the Freedom of Information Act, but what they did was, while they covered it up, they paid $5 million to the family for hush money. But through Freedom of Information Act, it got out anyhow. And what you saw in the, in the courtroom when I was there was he was shot 16 times, 14 times on the ground, and the jury convicted him the first time in 50 years. What's significant about that, it seems to me, beside police being convicted, was that when Trayvon Martin was killed, there were several thousand outside the courtroom waiting for the waiting for the uh, uh, for the result, and the killer was set free, and they were, they protested. They they had kind of poo-pooed the voting as being a relevant source of power. But at the end of the day, the power is in the jury. Only racist voters can serve on juries. In Chicago, what happened two weeks ago is that those who had been poo-pooing voting as a relevant source of power had to wait on 12 jurors to determine the fate of the killer. And the jury decided that the killer was guilty. And Dr. King's point was, even when Emmett Till was killed or Meg Evans was killed, is that with no blacks on the jury, we were hung by the jury, we couldn't hang the jury. Voting matters, having the right to vote, the protected right to vote. Among other things, jurors serve uh, on, uh, on, voters serve on juries, and that determines the fate of so many people, and get a measure of justice to the court system in that way. Wow. You know, we hear a lot of talk in the media and really in daily conversations about how polarized America is right now. Um, you know, as someone who grew up in segregated America, was involved in activism, the civil rights movement, and, and politics for, for decades, can you offer some perspective on this? Are, are we more polarized as a nation now than, than ever? We may be more, more polarized, but not more segregated. When I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, um, put it this way, when Dr. King spoke in Washington, March on Washington, the day he spoke from Texas across to Florida up to Maryland, black people could not use a single public toilet. Wow. Latinos could not use a single public toilet. Uh, my high school class could not take pictures in the London State Capitol. I could not apply to Furman or Clemson, the University of South Carolina. We couldn't even apply. Hmm. Uh, the day he spoke in Washington, we could not buy ice cream with Howard Johnson or in the room with Holiday Inn. And that was the state of the law. And too many churches complied with that state of law. They even rationalized it as being God's will. But the minority of churches, uh, creative, conscience churches, 
fought back. And in the end, we marched enough, died enough, and suffered enough to change those laws to begin to make the grounds for a new South because we began to pull walls down and build bridges. Uh, we are a better South and a better nation today because walls came down and bridges were built. You couldn't have the Carolina Panthers or the Atlanta Falcons behind the walls or the Dallas Cowboys behind the walls. You couldn't have uh, all that development along I-85 behind the walls. You couldn't have had the Olympics in Atlanta behind the walls. You couldn't have Toyota and Honda and Nissan in the South behind the walls. The walls came down the South began to prosper again. And what's so strange to me, but cotton is no longer the king. Tobacco is no longer king, as it were. Uh, the South has grown so much to become so subject to schemes of manipulation and to meanness. We're better off, and we should behave in ways that are different. And I think about North Carolina, how much progress we made in this state, and yet we've been corrupted by the political process. When, when I played Michigan in the big game a few years ago, that was a big deal to all of us. How, why could I beat Michigan? Because no matter what the odds are, when the playing field is even, the rules are public, the goals are clear, the referee is fair, and the score is transparent, you can make it. When the playing field is not even, rules not public, goals not clear, referee not fair, you cannot make it. So we, we, we glean some athletics in an arena which has a measure of justice that often does not apply beyond the playing field. So in North Carolina today, they, they, removed, they closed down about 200 voting precincts. They moved precincts from some campuses. North Carolina A&T, where I went to school, a school with a contiguous body, they've split the voting right down the campus. So part of the student body votes in one congressional district and part in another. That's a corrupted process, and intentionally so, designed to disenfranchise. In Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is running, she's running against the Secretary of State, who is the Secretary of State, and she's running against the referee and the scorekeeper. He's held back 70,000-plus voters, 80% African-American, determining their eligibility. He is the scorekeeper and the referee. He shouldn't even be running against her. I should recuse himself if he is running. Or uh, in North Dakota, where statute of Native American population is. They passed a law so you can only vote if you have your, your home address. On reservations, they don't have home address. They have post office boxes. Mm-hmm. So these schemes undermine democracy are, are disturbing to me. And and, and uh, if we played the big game and the rules were not fair and goals not clear in public, we would put protests. But in politics, we seem to make it all right. It's not all right. We want a, we want a system that's fair and fairly applied. Americans want and deserve an even playing field with equal protection under the law, equal access, and fairness. I'd like to ask you a question um, that's similar to one that I was um, very fortunate to be able to ask Julian Bond. And it's about activism and getting things done, uh, really affecting change. Um, and I was thinking about this as you were talking, um, answering this last question. At times in my life, I've felt that really the only way to get public awareness around certain issues um, is to generate attention with a gathering or a demonstration or a protest. Um, at some point, if things are really going to change, you have to be ready to come to the table and um, sit down with people who are inside that system that is 
problematic that you're trying to change? But often those who are in power don't want to talk. They want to control. Right. They choose control over growth. So when young America, often free of the, the debt the parents are in, uh, who are studying democracy in a purer form, begin to fight back, they become agents of change. During the two and the four and six years of slavery, young America began to fight back and join the abolitionist movement. And and they connected worldwide. You had abolitionists in, in Europe and, and in France. And matter of fact, the Statue of Liberty comes from a gift from France when we ended slavery. They gave us the Statue of Liberty as a gift for young young people coming alive. In the in the uh, after slavery, uh, five thousand blacks were lynched between eighteen eighty and nineteen fifty, and young Americans were leading the drive to stop lynching to make lynching a federal crime. And by the way, it's still not yet a federal crime. As a matter of fact, lynching is not. But young Americans fought to end legal segregation. Uh, we fought to end the barbaric dehumanizing laws of racial segregation as a matter of law. We couldn't attend App State. We couldn't attend University of North Carolina, North Carolina State. We fought to bring those barriers down and to create bridges. The good news is we won those battles, um, and basically led by young people. Right. Now, each generation must fight the issues of its day. One issue of our day, we must fight poverty in a renewed sense. This state assuming the poor people to turn down a Medicaid, several billion dollars we've, we've sent back. And the, the argument is we don't want to be beholden to the federal government. Or we don't want socialism. In the state's highway is social, mm-hmm. it's government. The penitentiary is social. The military is social. The airports are social. The seaports are social. University systems, App State, or UNC, and ANT are social. So we're some combination of social and, and, and private. The school may be socialized, funded by the government. We may have private contracts to build the school. So we're some we're kind of a kind of democratic socialism in reality. And yet, youth must lead the drive. Life, I, I put, is like putty. It must shape the kind of world you want to live in. So if you want a world where you have in, in discrimination based on race, gender, religion, you must fight for that kind of world. You want a world where, where every vote counts, fight for that kind of world. 1960, John Kennedy beat Nixon by 112,000 votes. In 64, Nixon beat Humphrey by 400,000 votes. In 2000, Gore was leading the race against Bush. In Duval County, they stopped the count. And when Bush got up 534, when stopping the count by state law, uh, Bush won, but really Gore won. The winner lost and loser won. That was not good for democracy. The last election, Hillary Clinton beat Trump by 3 million votes. Obviously, well, but she didn't get the Electoral College. The Electoral College is a holdover from the uh, Civil War. Either you have one person, one vote, or you don't. 3 million vote lead in America is a 3 million vote lead, one person, one vote in America. So fighting to, to clear out these unfinished items in our democracy is, is, is the boss of young people. So what advice do you have for young people who, who need to make that same transition? Or maybe they don't. Do they need to make that same transition that, that you made in some ways where you began as an, as an activist working outside the system but then started working 
in within that same system in order to affect that change. I've always sought to expand the system. We, we learn to live apart. We've survived apart. Now we must learn to live together. We came out, out of our little white and black and brown cocoons. But what makes America great is learning to live together. It's France, you know, for, for the French, and China for the Chinese. But America for all of us, a multiracial, multicultural society is a unique experiment in American, in world history. Half of all human beings are Asian, half of them are Chinese, one-eighth African, one-fourth Nigerian. Uh, most people in, in the world are yellow, are brown, are black, non-Christian, poor, female, young, and don't speak English. Learning to cope in that world. If you live, if you live in a little white ethnic cocoon and can't relate to the world, you cannot grow. If you make all the ease in your cocoon, you're not you're not smart enough to cope. That's why we should become multilingual. We want American kids to learn to speak Spanish. Why? Because two thirds of our neighbors speak Spanish. Our number three trading partner is Mexico. And they should learn to speak English because America's dominance in the world, the world economy, and world politics. So learning to live together is a, is a big deal. And so I would urge if you come to App State, uh, get a classmate from a different ethnicity. Meet, meet with somebody from another country. Don't just sit with your group every day. Mm-hmm. Learn to live with people and hear their stories. The mountaineer story will be different than the story of one who lives on the coast. But every story is a valid story. So the more you learn, the more you can relate. I would say when I ran for the presidency, the one thing that you learn is that you have to get votes from any place. You must get stories from any place. You must be able to relate to many people. You cannot run a a presidential campaign on, on your group. You must learn to live with people. In your social justice work, you have navigated some significant challenges that have come up while working toward the same goals with people who want to take different approaches. And you know, kind of like you just said, tests like that are, are what teach us the most. You learn from those kinds of tests. So can you talk about what you've learned that you can share about how to keep moving forward when your friendships, professional relationships, even your mentorships are are challenged by circumstances that might offer very different paths toward that same goal? One of the values of coming to the university, you learn by listening and you learn also by talking. You learn by observation. Uh, and at the end of the day, getting, if your back is against the wall, you have three options. You uh, adjust to your situation, or you resent what you don't like and become bitter, or you resist and you fight back. And fighting back nonviolently and legally and with marching feet are acceptable, creative ways to fight back, and they tend to work. Uh, when you can when you can speak up and speak out, when you can write and be heard, you don't need to go on the ground and become a terrorist in America. You can speak out. People who are upset with the present administration, November 6th, can vote and make their voices heard. If, you, if the Democrats, for example, take back the Congress or the Senate this time around, they will have been heard again by the public. And their vote will determine the behavior of the executive office and, and, and legislative what makes America great is separation of powers and balance, checks and balances. Right, for example, today in North Carolina, if you're 18, it will be 18 on November, you can vote this year, like right now. Every student of the state should be registered to vote in Boone. 
you may you may be from Asheville or Greensboro, Wilmington. You may be, you may be from Baltimore, Washington. You should vote for you attend school. Residency is there is a right to vote. You you have the right to to to, to, to vote in in Boone, and to run for office in Boone. You know, interesting enough, when we got the right to vote in 1965, blacks had been denied the right to vote almost a century. White women couldn't serve on juries in much of the South. 18 years couldn't vote those serving in Vietnam. You couldn't vote on college campuses. You couldn't vote bilingually. We, 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 we removed those barriers. So when it came time to voting residency, many small towns, they, they want the students at App State to spend money here, use the service stations and the food restaurant. They're not particularly about you voting here. President student body can run for mayor and probably can win. 19,000 students as a block, if they determine that's what their interest is, you, you have the right to run for state legislature. Students on this campus have the right to run for office if you register to vote in Boone. That's why there's been such an attempt to disenfranchise campuses. Because when campuses are caught up in, a, in the spirit of, of a movement and vote, vote the numbers, they affect the outcome of governors and senators. You think about Kennedy beat Nixon about 112,000 votes. The more college students in the state of North Carolina than that alone. Empowering students is a big deal. And with that power, of course, of course comes responsibility to make choices. Now, I would say one choice is to address the issue of poverty. Most poor people are not black. They're white, they're female, and they're young. Well, the white, black, or brown hunger hurts. And the state is blessed as North Carolina. Over half the people make less than $15 an hour. Working poor people, if you work every day and can't afford student tuition, you're working yourself into debt because you're going to borrow money to go to school. You're working every day and can't afford health care. You're working your way in, into poverty. And you should be able to work and make a living and have enough left over to take vacations and, and develop other dimensions of life. So we all get working people to have $15 an hour as a pay scale as a way of working your way out of poverty. So poverty is a big issue. Racial polarization. Learn to live together across these lines of race. And of course, choosing a peace budget over a war budget. Uh, the way Jesus put this thing on this neighbor, who is my neighbor, on this race thing, and he did it without calling it race. He said, a man was walking down the street one day attending to his business, and two thieves robbed him. And they were Jewish, because he was Jewish. He was referring to his own people. And the guy was beaten and left to die. And while dying, he looked up and saw a, a rabbi, a reverend, a man of God, who walked the other side of the street and kept walking. Looked up and saw one of his own ethnic kin. He kept walking. But a Samaritan from another country who worshiped God differently, another culture, he helped, he helped him up. She said, who is your neighbor? Is it, the, is it your reverend who walked past you? Is it your ethnic kin who, who walked past you? The guy who's another race, another language, another culture. That's, that's Jesus' way of defining through moral terms who is one's neighbor. You never know who's going who's, who's to be the Samaritan in your life. All of us end up invariably with some Samaritan coming to our rescue. And we should be a Samaritan going to someone else's rescue as well. I think that's really um, poignant and very applicable to what we're doing here at Appalachian because we really are working to reach out um, and recruit and retain 
um, rural students. Oftentimes, they're first-generation college students. Oftentimes, they're students who, um, who you know, have low economic status um, or very are very challenged uh, when it comes to being able to afford college. Which is interesting, but God distributes gifts, and the gifts come from everywhere. You never know one from the, from the smallest crevice on the mountainside may be that special genius that has a cure for cancer. You never know who has that, that sterling voice that can sing so well or run the ball so well, as the case may be. We distribute books but God distributes talent. He does it every which way. So you're learning. I wanted my sons and daughters to go to North Carolina and to go to a public school where they could see youth who may not have been as blessed, who may have had a crooked tooth because their parents couldn't take them to the dentist, who may have had a crooked eye because their parents couldn't take them to an optometrist, but smarter than them, uh, who had a special genius as an engineer, uh, a special tendency to becoming a doctor or a lawyer. So I, I guess it's my way of saying I said I want my children to have five qualities. I want them to have a good mind. Strong minds matter. To be intellectually strong matters. I want them to have um, a work ethic, be willing to work and work diligently. I want them to have the courage of their convictions, not be a coward in the face of challenge. I want them to have scientific objectivity to see others as they are not as they would have them to be. I want them to have a sense of religion, that ultimately we belong to God, and what we do must be godly, certainly in our intent. Wow. <laughs> um, so, Reverend Jackson, you, you have a packed day here at Appalachian. You were telling me a little bit about your schedule before you came, too. And, and you keep up this incredibly demanding schedule. You've accomplished so much. And, and I was thinking about that today. Well, a lot of my friends would wake up in the morning and they would say, you know what? I've really done a lot. I think I can go back to bed. And yet you get up and you keep going. And I'm wondering, um, what what keeps you going? I have a tough schedule today, and I want to add one more item to it. Cracker Barrel. <laughs> <laughs> well, is Cracker Barrel was what keeps you going. <laughs> uh, well, in part, uh, I think that um, purpose. Mm-hmm. I went to jail. I was nineteen, trying to use the public library. Seven classmates I came home from school and went to the color library. Didn't have enough books. And Miss Miss, I'll send you to the Central Library. My friend is a librarian. She had met her someplace. And so I, I, I got a little note, and I ran all the way down. She called her. And I got to the library, and two police were there. I was naive enough to think they would just happen to be there, but she had called the police since I was coming. And so I, I gave her the note. She said, I knew you were coming. I said, I'd like to get these books. I had to do 25. I had to take the bibliographers. I had to get the books. She said, I have a book for you in seven days. I said, seven days? It's just two of us in the library. She said, seven days. I said, may I go down in the stack? She said, Seven days, police. You heard what she said. I cried. I got it. I walked out. This summer, I intended to use this public library, and so we we went to jail that summer, fighting to open open those doors. But today, you you don't have to go to jail to use the library. We we, we won that battle. Mm-hmm. Others went to jail and killed trying to get the right to vote. We won that battle. Now we must vote and make sure the rules are fair, so we can win those battles. And, and it was voted. I remember last year talking to people from Kentucky. 
and some really from up around Asheville, who were dead set against Obamacare. They wanted affordable health care. That's like one of the omelet don't want the eggs. Affordable health care is that. But you see, when Johnson opened up the war on poverty, he, he opened up in Appalachia uh, at the University of Ohio in Athens. He whitened the face of poverty, democratized the debate. If war on poverty had been seen as a program for blacks, whites would have been against it, been a program, culture in that way. He opened it up, in, in, and so if, if, if affordable health care becomes seen as based on need, everybody gravitates. But when they painted Obamacare, there was a calculated move to turn people against it who, were, who needed it. And that's when Trump first got in office. He, he was going to crack down on Obamacare. People said, but we, we need affordable health care for the first time. We have to fight those kind of manipulative schemes that set people against people. So I would say today our struggle is to fight against abounding poverty. Too few have too much. Too many have almost nothing. Secondly, the end racial polarization, learning to live together. And third, the choosing peace of war. When I look at Carolina play New York Jets on a given Sunday afternoon, it's uniform color and not skin color, it's direction, not complexion. In that two hours, we learn to pull and live together. It must, not be limited. it must not be limited to a ball game. As you look back and look forward, <clears throat> are you hopeful for the future and for the generations for whom you forged new pathways? I'm excited about America's future. I know that having babies on the borders in cages is not the best America. And that is happening now, but using babies and to separate families to deter immigration is not, is not the American dream. We will we'll win that battle. I know the schemes to undermine access to voting will not survive. For example, I went to, went to Salem to speak last year, about 7,000 people, huge numbers of people. And as opposed to having the voting booth on the campus at the, at the student center, they moved it three miles down the road. You had to go down there by walking and catching, catching the bus. It's not fair. It's not fair. We, we, we want to win. Let the winner win. Let the loser lose. But be fair about it. Uh, and that's. I know that today, that uh, when the top one percent have so much, and living in in the surplus culture, and many others living the deficit culture, it's not fair. We must democratize our economy, where there's a, a fairer distribution of resources. But today, when Citizens United can a guy can sit in New York and say, "I think I want to, I want the congressperson from Boone to be my congressperson and just invest thousand dollars in Boone. He lives in New York. People should get the money from the people that they get the vote from. People should be restricted to getting money from the, from the people they get their vote from. So you feel your people. If you can get your oats from one side of town." You vote from another. It's not democracy. So for the people who are running for office or um, worrying about the fact that their vote might not count, um, what do you have to say to them to encourage them to stay in it? Be a long-distance runner. If you go to work and someone steals your money, don't stop working. 
catch the robber. Probably one won't steal your vote because it's valuable. Don't stop fighting for your democratic right, your right to be heard, your right to write, your right to vote, your right to protest. What makes America great is the right to fight for the right. And when we do that, I've, I've seen us overcome an awful lot in my life and time. I've seen us overcome staunch legal segregation where we learn, you know, put it this way, if, if there's a wall between us, on the other side of the wall there's ignorance and fear and hatred and violence. You're ignorant of who's on the other side of the wall. You fear them, you only hear them rumbling. Ignorance, hatred, fear, and then violence. When the walls come down, you see each other as they are, not as you would have them to be. Or to put it another way, when you plant two seeds in the ground of equal strength, one grows tall, one is short and stunted. One grows up on the sunny side, it grows. On the shady side, it does not grow. Growth is determined by photosynthesis, not by race, not by color. You play at University of Michigan. Students of all races, they were mountaineers that day. That's, that's life at its best. That's one of the great moments of the school's history, where David beat Goliath because he had an even playing field. And that's America at its best, is fighting for an even playing field. Well, Reverend Jesse Jackson, um, I never would have imagined a time when I could sit down across the table from you and have a conversation. It has been an honor and a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so much for your time and, and for what you will continue to do on our campus today and well into the future. Thank you very much. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.